It's not really a good, there's not a huge punchline. Actually, there was a fire at the fair and they needed water and so they came to me. And in the middle of the night, it's just kind of one of those weird sounds that you kind of like, that could be a bear. As soon as we start leaving that campsite, he's like, I, I literally can't walk. So I like lived in the camp with yeah. the most good story. I was working that one of the husky games. And the boy comes from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Okay, I think I've read that. We were like, oh, well, the next time we come, we're going to come with Emma. So we're at the wrong airport. Like, what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face. And I was getting nicer, and I was like, what are you doing? You're freaking out. Thank you, One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. His name was Telemachus and he was a monk from a small village in Turkey. Now, when Telemachus the monk wasn't inside the monetary serving others, he was in solitude and prayer. And one day, while he was in solitude and prayer, God spoke into his heart, and he told him to go to Rome. Now, in the fifth century, Rome was the political and economic epicenter of the world, and he'd never been there. So he went to Rome, and as soon as he got there, he realized that he did not fit in. In fact, he would say that it was a violent place, that the people were anxious, the people were angry. And one day he's out in the street and he's in front of this huge Colosseum that he'd never been in before. And, and this mob comes in and they're going into the, the Colosseum and he gets swept into the Colosseum. He goes up into the stands. And as he's in the stands, the people are yelling and screaming and then all of a sudden the crowd becomes silent. You see, it's a gladiator Colosseum. And the gladiators marched out and they stood in front of the emperor. His name was Honorius. And they say to Emperor Honorius, we who are about to die salute you. Honorius gives them the nod. And the blood fest began. Telemachus had never seen anything like it in his life. And the people are yelling and screaming because there's blood lust in the audience. And he's yelling and, and he stands up and starts yelling and screaming, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. And they just looked at him like pigs looking at a wristwatch. And as he yelled that over and over, no one was listening to him. So he moved down to the, the perimeter, to the edge of the arena. And at the edge of the arena, he's yelling into the gladiators, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. None of them are doing anything. He's in his monk garb. He throws himself into the arena, and he goes up to a gladiator. And this is where the historical accounts differ. Two accounts on what happened. Account number one is that he went up to a gladiator, and he screamed, in the name of Christ, stop. The gladiator takes his sword and cuts him down, and he bleeds out on the arena floor, saying those last words, in the name of Christ, stop. The other account says that the people in the audience were so upset that he was upsetting their entertainment that they took rocks and they stoned him to death, his last words being, in the name of Christ, stop. Here's what's interesting about the story. Emperor Honorius noticed something about that monk. He noticed his courage, and what's interesting is that he would end the gladiator games from then on out. There would be no more gladiator games, especially in that Colosseum. 
And what I think is interesting about that is those pagan games had been going on for hundreds of years. Tens of thousands of people had died in gladiator games, thousands of them, Christians. Yet God used a monk from the middle of nowhere, an available and obedient man of God to do God's bidding. And God does that. He's crazy like that. He takes the available and obedient woman or man of God, and he does miracles through them. Such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. It's a math formula. Your obedience plus God's faithfulness equals a miracle. Your obedience plus God's faithfulness equals a miracle. God works miracles through normal men and women like you and I. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week 12 of our summer series called Stories Worth Telling. It's in this series in which we're looking at a whole bunch of different characters of the Bible, characters with ordinary stories like yours and mine, but they become extraordinary when God inserts himself and writes himself into those stories. Andy Stanley once said that the only story worth telling is an extraordinary story. The only story then worth hearing is an extraordinary story. And I think you'll agree with me that this summer we've heard a lot of great extraordinary stories. Last week we heard the story of Elijah. And when I was preaching last week, I said I was excited because I get to preach two weeks on this incredible prophet of the Old Testament. We are in 1 Kings 17, verses 1 through 7 last week. This week we're going to continue the story, verses 8 through 24. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. Let me set the scene for what's going on. And let me just give you a warning up front. If you were here last week, if you were watching online last week, we're glad you were. There's going to be some repetition in this because I got to repeat some things so we all understand the context of what's going on, but repetition is the mother of learning. So here we go. Go back with me about 3,000 plus years ago. Israel in 120 years burns through three kings. The third king, King Solomon, dies, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, or the, the, the 12 tribes split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The majority of the kings for the next few hundred years in both of those kingdoms are evil. So God calls up a man named Elijah, a prophet, to guide the people back to God and specifically to speak into the evil kings in the northern kingdom, specifically to speak into one evil king. His name is Ahab. Now, King Ahab is married to a woman who's known as the most evil woman in all of Scripture. Her name is Queen Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is the dominant partner in the relationship, and she institutes a systematic worship of two little g-gods. Asherah and Baal. And what she does is she has the government of Israel, the government that God formed, pay the salaries of 400 Asherah prophets and 450 Baal prophets. And their goal is to do one thing and one thing only to lead God's people away from God. So you can see that God's upset. So what God does is he tells Elijah, you're going to go stand in front of King Ahab, and this is what you're going to do. This is the Kip International Version, the KIV. He says, you're going to tell this guy, this, this punk Ahab, that, that his God that he worships, Baal, who's the God of fertility and rain, he's not the real God of fertility, of rain, or fertility and rain. I am the God that controls all things. So there's going to be a multi-year route, sucks to be you. And Elijah does that. Elijah stands in front of King Ahab, and then God immediately takes him to a brook, to a, a, a deserted area called Kareth. Kareth, names mean a lot in the Old Testament. Kareth means to cut down or cut off. And he cuts off Elijah for over a year to protect him, train him, and equip him. 
And what we found out in last week, some things that, that, that we could take away from that story, is that a calling comes at a very high price. That if God calls you, he's going to equip you. If God calls you, he's going to provide for you. Or in the words of Bishop T.D. Jakes, if God gives you a vision, he's going to give you a provision. And so he stays there in this brook for a year plus, and God takes care of him. But God being that ultimate coach that wants to make sure his star athletes are doing well and can run that race, he puts his star athlete Elijah through another workout, and he purposely dries up the brook to move Elijah into today's story. And from that, we learn that dried up brooks often point to God's bigger plans. So our story picks up, we're about 850 years before Jesus. So we're a couple hundred years before God is going to send his people to Babylon into captivity. So our story picks up there. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Let's talk about this place, Zarephath of Sidon. I, I, as I said, names mean something in the Old Testament, and this one really adds to our story. So I got to go Conan the grammarian on you, okay? I know it's the middle of summer or getting towards the end of summer, and a lot of you guys are thinking, academics, no thank you. Go with me on this, please. Zarephath, the verb, the to-do verb, Zarephath. It means to smelt or to melt. Okay, picture, picture this big iron furnace, and the iron furnace is just blazing, and you get this chunk of iron that's just a chunk, and you put it in the iron furnace, and all the impurities are burned off. That's what it means to smelt. There's, God sends him to Zarephath for a smelting process, but get this. It also means it's a noun, and the noun, you know, a noun's a special kind of word, it's any name I've ever heard. I find it quite interesting to know. Announce a person, place, or thing. Schoolhouse rock. People, I'm giving you my best here. Conan the grammarian. Go with me. Wow, tough audience. Crickets on that one. Zarephath, the noun, means crucible. Crucible. It's a time of intense suffering and intense pain. So God is leading. He's leading this man, Elijah, to a crucible, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Actually, it's in a place called Sidon, and it's 100 miles into enemy territory. Sidon is important because that's where Queen Jezebel was born. Those are her people, and, and she wants to kill Elijah. We'll see that later on in, in, in different stories of Elijah. And here's what's interesting is he doesn't just go there on his own. God leads him. You know, folks, we all need crucibles in our lives. We do. We all need crucibles. Think about it. We can set up ourselves and put ourselves in our own crucibles by the stupid decisions we make, by sinful activity in our lives. We can be placed in a crucible because life happens, somebody else's stupidity, or we get an illness or something like that. Or we can have God lead us purposely into a crucible. No matter what happens, whichever one of those scenarios happens, this is what's important. Every man or woman of greatness God ever used had to go through multiple crucibles. Every man or woman of greatness God ever used had to go through crucibles. And crucibles are so hard. But we've got so many biblical accounts of that. Abraham. Abraham received the covenant for Israel while going through multiple crucibles. Esther. She was put in a life-threatening position for such a time as this while going through an horrific crucible. 
Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and went through crucible after crucible after crucible, yet in the end he'd say, God put all this together for the, the, the saving of millions of lives. And what about Mary, the mother of Jesus? She starts out an unwed, pregnant teenager living in a shame culture. And she goes from crucible after crucible after crucible, multiple crucibles, as she lives out the calling to be Jesus' mom. And then there's Moses. Moses led the obstinate Israelites through the desert for 40 years. 40 years, and he went through crucible after crucible after crucible. What's my point? Folks, whenever you go through a crucible, and every single person here, you will go through multiple crucibles. Understand that God hasn't left you, that God won't bless you, that God hasn't abandoned you. Understand that crucibles are a part of life, and they're a training ground for life. A couple weeks ago, actually several weeks ago, I preached on a guy named Solomon. And when I, when I talked about this guy named Solomon, we had a key takeaway. As Christ followers, as Christ followers, what we do in this life echoes into eternity. And as Christ followers, the way we suffer echoes into eternity. The way we suffer reverberates into people outside of our lives who are watching us. Our kids, our grandkids, friends, family members, workers, co-workers, classmates, they all are watching us. And the way we suffer matters. And it's so hard to be in a crucible. There are times of affliction, despair, desperation, guilt, illness and loneliness, solitude, regret, and shame. Yet every man or woman of greatness God ever used had to go through multiple crucibles. You cannot have a, a crown without a cross. And that's what we see as God leads Elijah into the crucible. Look at Elijah's response, the first part of verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. So he went to Zarephath. God called him and he went. Let's put ourselves in Elijah's sandals for a couple of minutes. Think about Elijah. He's a Jewish man. This is 3,000-ish years ago. He's a Jewish man. And so a Jewish man, first of all, would not want to go outside of Jewish territory. Anything non-Jewish is called Gentile. So he wouldn't want to go to Gentile territory. That's enemy territory. But God is sending him into enemy territory. He's sending him to, into to Gentile territory, and he's going to speak with a woman. And in that culture, women were looked down upon. A Jewish man would never be caught speaking to a non-Jewish woman. On top of that, she's a widow, and she's needy. On top of that, guess what? She's going to minister to him. This is what I think is interesting, that is in, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus actually alludes to this story. He, basically, he tells the Pharisees, this is the KIV, Kip International version of this. He says to the Pharisees, you guys are like the wicked people of Sidon. You're wicked. You don't get it. You don't understand that I came to save both the Jew and the Gentile. That race thing, it just doesn't matter. And so if Jesus thinks that this is a story worth telling, we should too. So let's see what happens. Remember our, our main thought, your obedience plus God's faithfulness, because God is always faithful, equals a miracle. Here we go, verses 10 through 12. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called him, bring me please a piece of bread. Basically says, make me a sandwich. Now look at her response, verse 12. 
As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take to my home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Let's put ourselves in this widow's sandals. She probably didn't need her fingers to count her rib cage, count the ribs in her rib cage. She was definitely in a difficult time. There's a drought, and if there's a drought, that means there's a famine. And there's no bread and there's no water. She's gathering sticks because she's going to make a fire and she's going to cook the last food that she has. Then she and her little boy are going to die. And my guess would be she's pretty happy about that. She's glad. She's glad to be done. Glad to be done fighting the fight. Glad to be done trying to get food every day. Glad to be done begging for scraps. She's at her end, the end of her rope. But here's the amazing thing about God. God does some of his best work when you're at the end of your rope. He does. He does some of his best work when he's at the end, when you're at the end of your rope. And we can't skip over this lesson here because this is very important. God uses people who have been through crucibles to help you walk through yours. See, Elijah's been there, done that. He can say to the woman, listen, I know it sounds crazy, but we serve a crazy God. I serve a crazy God. He, he led me to this place called Kareth. And in this place called Kareth, you probably never heard of it. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's a drought going on. And I had the best water ever. It was so amazing. And twice a day, these birds would show up and they'd have food just for me. God took care of me then, and he's going to take care of me now. If you have gone through a crucible or ten, and you've seen God show up in your life, Maybe God's given you a tug on your heart today that you need to step outside of yourself and help someone else who's going through a crucible to point them to Jesus, to remind them that it's going to be okay. You comfort them with the comfort he has given you. No pain will be wasted. So what happens? Verses 13 and 14. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Go home and do as as you have said, but first of all, make me a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Now here's the thing, she's at a crossroad. She can tell him to pound sand, or she can make him a pound cake. If she wants to get the miracle, she's got to be obedient. And as I'm looking at the story, I started thinking about in the Bible, and I may be wrong, and there may be a couple, you know, offshoots of this, but I think this, every miracle begins with an act of obedience. Every miracle begins with an act of obedience. Think about it. Moses, God says to Moses as he's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, he comes up to an obstacle, the Red Sea. God says, lift up your staff, lift up your arm. As soon as you do, I'm going to split the Red Sea. Moses is obedient. God is faithful because God's always faithful, and a miracle occurs. The disciples are in a boat, and it's the middle of the night, and they look off to, out into the darkness, and they see a ghost, and they go, wait a second, no, it's not a ghost, that's Jesus. And so Jesus says to Peter, he says, Peter, come on out to me. I'm out here in the water, come out to me. And Peter, through faith and obedience, steps out of the boat and onto the water. It's a miracle. Jesus runs into this blind guy, and the blind guy wants to see. And Jesus says, go wash yourself, wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. 
And the blind guy fumbles around. He gets to the pool of Siloam. He washes his eyes, and he can see. A miracle is followed by obedience. So for this lady, if she doesn't do what this man of God is saying, she and her son are going to die. She's got nothing else to lose. So remember our main thought. Your obedience plus God's faithfulness equals what? Help me out. A miracle. Thank you, the three of you who said that. Let's keep on going. Verses 15. Guys, come on. This is a great story. Verses 15 and 16. Here we go. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. She went away and did. She did what Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. God used a person to do a miracle. She went and did. You know, obedience is faith in action. And obedience and faith walk arm in arm down the, st- the same street. And God is always faithful. So God provides. He provides for an unspecified amount of time. We don't know how much time. So she gets through that crucible. But remember that thought that every man or woman of greatness God ever used had to go through multiple crucibles. Her world is about ready to be rocked. Look what happens, verses 17 and 18. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? So she's rocked. She is a train wreck, and that's understandable. But here's what's interesting. What we're going to see in this story is not only does she have a crisis of faith, but our man Elijah has a crisis of faith too. Guys, when we hit the impossibilities of life, when we hit the crucibles of life, we need to understand that it's going to take strong faith. And strong faith requires us to look in the rearview mirror. It does. It requires us to look in the rearview mirror. It's been said that hindsight is 20-20, that when we go through something, we can look back and, you know, we've got all that, that 20-20 vision to see everything that happened. It's the same with faith. When we hit hard times, we have to look and see where God has shown up. In, in the, the front of my Bible, I've got 20 spiritual markers, and there are times throughout my life where I've seen God show up in a powerful way. In my office are 12 years of journals, Journals where I've written out a whole bunch of stuff, poured my heart out, and I've seen God show up. I believe in my heart and soul that if life is worth living, life is worth recording. And what happens is I can, I can go through, when I hit a crucible, I can go back and look and see where God has shown up in my life. I can change my perspective. Remember, for those of you who, who were here last week, remember that challenge I gave you. When you hit a hard time, consider your perspective. And I asked you to memorize three things. And those three things were, first of all, that God is good, that we serve a good, good Father. And then that secondly, that God is in control, that nothing lands in our laps that hasn't passed through the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. It doesn't mean God causes evil. It means that whatever is going on, God is sovereign over it. And the third thing is that God wants what's best for me and you. And as I hang on to those promises and those truths, I can look back and see that God has done that in my life. So the widow has seen God at work, but she's at a loss, and understandably so. Elijah has seen God at work. He has lived it out, yet Elijah's faith is rocked. Look what happens, verses 19 and 20. 
Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, if you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die. In short, Elijah's screaming, why, God, why? He gets real with God. About 18 years ago, I I made a vow. I made a vow to God. I, I, I said to God, I am not going, whenever I hit a time of difficulty, no matter how horrific it is, I'm not going to scream, why, God, why? I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you no matter what. You are good. You are in control, and you know what's best for me. And I did okay with that until 2014. I won't go into the details, but we had a really horrific thing happen in our family. It was horrible. And when that happened, I remember I was a Skagit campus pastor at that time. I'm driving down to Skagit, and I'm pounding on my roof because I just found some more information, and I'm screaming, why, God, why? And immediately... This still small voice said, Kip, what are you doing here? Why are you screaming at me? I'm not the opposition in this. I'm here to help you. I'm going to bring beauty out of these ashes. You said in 2000 that you're going to trust me. Put some teeth to that now. Trust me, I'm going to bring beauty out of this. If not on this side of eternity, I'll do it in the next. Will you just trust me? Many of you right now are going through something horrific, and my heart breaks for you. I'm sorry you're doing that. You're having to go through that. Many of you are screaming at God right now, saying, why, God, why? And I'll just tell you, I've never seen him show up and answer that directly. My recommendation to you is instead of putting God on the opposition by screaming that, say, God, I'm going to trust you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I'm wrecked right now, but I'm going to trust you. But here's the thing. If you have said that, or you're in that time and you're saying that, give yourself some grace. Elijah, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe, Elijah, whose name means the Lord is my God, my God is Jehovah, screamed, why, God, why? God's not going to smack you down for it. Trust in him. So Elijah grabs this little boy, picks him up, and he carries him upstairs to the upper room And that's important. If you look at the story of Elijah, he's a prayer warrior. And my guess would be in that upper room, that was the room that he was staying in. My guess would be he was on his knees as a prayer warrior in that room, soaking that room in prayer. He was 24-7 probably some days on his knees praying in his war room. That room had a special meaning for him. And that's why he didn't do what he was going to do right there on the floor downstairs. He had to take him to this place. Do you have a war room? Do you have a place you can go where you just pour it out to God, just you and God? And over time, you see God show up again and again and again, and it gives you that strong faith when you look in the rearview mirror. So Elijah takes him to the war room. What happens? Verses 21 through 24. Then he stretched himself out on the boy. He stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son's alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. One man's obedience plus God's faithfulness equals what? A miracle. 
A miracle. God uses people to do his bidding. He, he does it right here. And I think it's interesting that, that in this dialogue, she asks, is this punishment for my sins? And then Elijah turns around, and, and he basically asks the same thing. Is this judgment? Here's what they don't say. Neither of them say, God, you have no right to take my son. God, you have no right to take this woman's Son, it's as if they acknowledge God's sovereignty in the situation. It's as if they acknowledge that God is a God that judges. And that's not real popular to preach nowadays, but it's a truth. Timothy Keller, uh, he's my favorite theologian of this time, and I drew from him for a couple points from this in his commentary. And he once said, we want a loving God, not a judging God. We want a God who will never push back on us but show up for us when we need him. We want him, him to be accountable to us, to always answer the question, why God, why, when we go through those crucibles, but that's not God. Yet in this story, God's merciful. He's God of love and mercy. And here's what's beautiful about this story. The beauty of this story is it points to the cross. It's why I love, I simply love preaching out of the Old Testament because there's so much foreshadowing of Jesus. And that happens here. Look, let's go back to verse 21. Look at this. Look at this again. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. This is the first place in Scripture where we see a resurrection. And in the Hebrew tradition, when you, when you have your arms wide, that means you're vulnerable. When Jesus was on the cross, how, how were his arms? They were outstretched. How many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. How many times did Elijah lay down on the boy? Three times. Jesus said to Peter in John 21, when you are old, you'll be led away with what? Outstretched arms, because Peter would die on a cross also. So the woman asks if God had taken her son because of her sins. And it's as if God says, in the words of, of Keller, lady, your sins can't pay the, the, the penalty. They can't. Your, your sins, your son can't pay the price of sin. Only mine can. You see, my son's going to stretch out and cry out. I'm a God of judgment, love, and grace. My son, not yours, will stretch out, cry out, and die out. Your son can't meet the bar. Only one can, and that's Jesus. There's a bar of justice. None of us can meet it by doing stuff. We're the only religion in which you don't have to do stuff to get saved. There's this bar of justice that only Jesus can meet, and it's as if God's saying, my son, not yours, will stretch out and die. And as I look at this, you know, I got to come up to that 30,000-foot view because when you're pulling apart a passage, come up to the 30,000-foot view and you look and you might miss something. And what I was going to miss was this. It wasn't Elijah's words that saved her. She had to see the resurrection. She did. Look at this. Let's look at verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know, now I know because of the resurrection, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is a truth. She had to see the resurrection. And we do too. Without the resurrection, our, life, our, our, our faith is meaningless. The apostle Paul said that, that if you confess with your lips and you believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We have to see the resurrection. 
And you may say, well, wait a second, Kip, that occurred a couple thousand years ago. Yeah, it did, but here's the beauty of what God does. He lets us see the resurrection each day because he gives us his inerrant word, the Bible. And he calls on us to place it on our hearts and we can see the resurrection, but we got to live the resurrection. There's nothing we do, we have to do to get into heaven. Salvation's a free gift from God. But then God starts transforming us from the inside out. And as he does that, he calls on us then to live a resurrected life. We see the resurrection, we live a resurrected life. Jesus tells us how to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. He talks to us about what Christian character is all about. The book of James, the entire book of James is about living the resurrection. We see the resurrection, we live a resurrected life. And as we hit those crucibles, and we're going to hit them over and over and over again, we then have the faith to trust in God. See, we have to face the impossibility of life, the impossibilities of life with faith. We have to face those crucibles with faith because every single one of us are going to go through multiple crucibles because every man or woman of greatness that God ever used had to go through a crucible. And when the jars run empty and the kids are sick and we want to control the situation, we have to step forward in faith and obedience because we've seen the resurrection and living the resurrection life, we trust in Jesus. We trust in God. It takes faith and it takes obedience. Jesus did that. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember last week I was talking a little bit about the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before he goes to the cross. I want to unpack that just a little bit. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on his knees. He's in agony. He's sweating drops of blood. He's in so much agony. And he says, Father, please take this cup, this cup from me, this cup of suffering. In the Bible, a cup means, in the Old Testament, a cup means wrath, and it reflects the need for justice. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's a theologian from the 1700s. He once mused that in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is on his knees, that God lays out in front of him the wrath that he would be taking on. And it's in the garden that Jesus realizes that he's going to be separated from God, and it tears him up. And as we talked about last week, an open door is not always God's door. Jesus had an open door. He could have called down 12 legions of angels and it could have been taken up to heaven, no harm, no foul. At least for us, there would be, though. Yet he decides to be faithful and obedient, and he goes to the cross. You see, he, he sees the wrath in the garden. He takes on the wrath on the cross, and with his arms outstretched, he screams those words, the, the, the last few words that he breathes, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not missing out on faith. It's not a faith issue. It's a reality. God had turned his back on him, and he had to do that so we wouldn't feel that. Jesus had to go through that. So now when we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, we do not have to experience the darkness Jesus felt. It was about faith. It was about obedience. We see the resurrection. We live a resurrected life. I'm looking at this, and I go back to Luke chapter 4, you know, because Jesus tells this story. He does. He talks about this story of Elijah, and what's interesting about it 
is a couple days later, he's walking into this small village. There's a funeral. And this one lady is a train wreck because she's a widow. And in that time, a widow who has only one son, well, it's going to be hard for her. And it's her son that they're carrying out of there. There's wailing and mourning going on, and Jesus walks up and says, young man, arise. It's the first resurrection of Jesus' ministry. Don't you see the parallels? The parallels from Elijah, the resurrection. She had to see the resurrection to understand who Jesus was. And then she could live out the resurrection. And as we live out the resurrection, what God does is he works miracles through us. It's our obedience and God's faithfulness. And he works out miracles. How cool is that? Well, I want to leave you guys with a challenge. Got to leave you with a challenge. Here's your challenge. Your challenge for this week is this. You need to ask yourself, where is God calling me to obedience? Where is God calling me to obedience? And this is tough because this might be a zing at you. And guys, whenever I do this, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Where is God calling me to obedience? Maybe you have an habitual sin that you're dealing with, whether it's porn, gambling, alcohol, drugs, whatever. That's, maybe it's that. Maybe it's another habit, like gossiping, complaining all the time, looking at the worst in people instead of the best. I don't know. Maybe you just need to take some time, and, you know, Jesus gave us two commandments. He said, love the, God, love the Lord your God with everything you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor like you want to be loved. Well, let's talk about that love your neighbor thing. How are you doing with that? Do you have someone in your life you need to forgive? God commands us to forgive them. He doesn't command us to reconcile with them. He reconciles in his time. We forgive in ours. Are we judging someone? Are you judging a race or a class of people? I don't know. Talk to God about that. You know, loving God, we love God by the way we love others, but there's another part to this. There's a doing part of being a disciple. To be a disciple, there's study and work you need to do. I'm not saying work to be saved. I'm saying to be a disciple, to truly live that resurrected life. Let's talk about those spiritual disciplines. How's your prayer life? Do you carve out some time every day just to talk to God? Do you carve out some time to read his word and get it in your heart? Because when you do that, what happens is you know the word of God and it can come his voice. You hear his voice and that overshadows and shouts down the voice of an imposter. What about serving? In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that we're supposed to use these spiritual gifts God's given us to serve in our church. How are you doing with that? Outside the walls, how are you doing with that? Or how about tithing? Oh, I know some of you right now are going, oh, here they go. They're going to be asking me for money. This is what the church always does. They just want my money. No, this is, this is a command from God. Take it up with him. I'm just the messenger. What God's calling us to do is give him our first fruits. You work that out with God. Are you giving him leftovers? Are you not even giving him anything? Talk to God about that. Where is God calling you to obedience? then see the resurrection. Live a resurrected life. God does something with your obedience and his faithfulness, and that something is miracles. All right, well, I'm excited about next week. Pastor Bob is back next week. Yeah, pretty excited. Okay, you're going to need to bring sunglasses because he got his braces removed, and he looks like a great white shark. So just be ready for that. You're forewarned. 
Uh, and he's going to be preaching on the sons of Korah. I've never heard two weeks of preaching on the sons of Korah. It's going to be pretty amazing as we continue with stories worth telling. All right, Skagit, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Brian. Congratulations on all those baptisms today. Boca Raton, those of you guys joining us online, thank you for being part of our online community.